Hey again, everybody. John Porteous of the Lovells Township Historical Society here, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. Well, we've got our season-ending episode this week. Uh, Glenn and I are going to be joined by Dave Leonard. Uh, I'll encourage you to stick around at the end of the episode, and uh, we'll set some expectations for the off-season. But uh, stick around. I think you're going to enjoy this one. Well, welcome, uh, Backcast Podcast listeners. Uh, this is Glenn Eberly and John Porteous with the Lovells Township Historical Society, and uh, we're doing our last podcast of the regular trout season uh, here in Michigan. Uh, this will air probably uh, when it's over, uh, and we have a, uh, a real treat for our, our listeners today. Uh, we have an absolute icon of fly fishing, uh, and for those of you that may not know Dave Leonard, uh, let me give you a little background. Uh, Dave is a master fly casting instructor for uh, Fly Fishers International. Uh, he's a businessman. Uh, he's the owner, founder, and owner of uh, Orvis Streamside Angler in Traverse City. Uh, he is a teacher. Uh, he's a mentor. Uh, he's a conservationist. He's been a past uh, president of a TU chapter and a founder of another TU chapter. We'll cover a little bit of that. Uh, and uh, just to end up, he's just an all-around good guy, and I'm I'm delighted to have known him for a number of years. So, Dave, welcome to the Backcast Podcast. We've got a lot to cover. Well, gee, thank you for that uh, glorious introduction, Glenn. Thank you. I, I probably Very left out. <laughs> Heard me? I probably left out a lot of things, but uh, uh, I think most of our, our listeners know you, Dave, and and uh, I hope they have had the same kind of wonderful experiences with you that I have. Uh, and let's let's jump right into some some questions. Uh, naturally, sure. uh, the first question, Dave, is uh, how did you come to this wonderful sport of fly fishing? And tell us about your background and how you got involved. You know, Glenn, I remember it vividly because I uh, I grew up uh, downstate, not in Traverse City, but down in in uh, Bloomfield Hills, actually. Uh, where my TU chapter was uh, back then, but when I, as a as a youngster, um, I learned to I love I loved to fly fish uh, later in life, but I learned to fly or to uh, just to fish in general and love to fish. That was a gift given to me by my grandfather. Uh, he's a great fisherman, bait caster. You know that was the way in those way days. In those days. And, um, and yet. Um, uh, my best friend in elementary school uh, loved to fish as well, and he lived on a small lake downstate, and I would take uh, the school bus home to his house, and we'd fish almost every day after school. Uh, there, there was no homework in those days after school every day, so we had the advantage of being able to go fish every day. But uh, the, the thing was when I was, you know, this is when I was like nine, nine years old, uh, maybe 10 years old, um, The uh, all of the covers of Outdoor Life and Field and Stream magazine were were uh, paintings of people fly fishing. And, th- and so, you know, no matter what articles you read inside about fishing in general, bait casting, spin fishing, whatever, uh, that was always, th- in my mind, thought of as like, these are the guys that really know how to do it. These are the experts, you know, are these guys with fly rods. So, uh, the, and the family would, uh, our family would rent a cottage uh, for a month every summer, 
and my mom would take us out to the, these cottages on different lakes. And, you know, I had my spinning tackle. We, I remember it was on White Lake that summer. Uh, it would have been about 1963, I guess. And uh, uh, I was only allowed, I was 10 years old, I was only allowed to take the rowboat into this little bay by the cottage. I wasn't allowed to take it out on the big water. And the bay was full of lily pads where my spinning tackle, my, my spinning lures would get caught in these uh uh, lily pads all the time and weed beds. It was terrible. I just, you know, I couldn't afford to lose the lures and it was very frustrating. Very so I, I, uh, I recall complaining to my mom, say, listen, I, I need a fly rod in order to fish this water if that's the only place I can go. And, uh, and I didn't have one and I had my great uncle's fly reel with a level line on it, I recall. <laughs> I still, I still have it, actually, and I still have that level line on it. And uh, it was a simplex, I recall. Anyways, the, uh, the hardware store in White Lake had a true temper fly rod. I think it cost me $7.85. And uh, my, my pop that. Uh, Sorry, that's my bird dog. <laughs> Go ahead, Dave. He's got, a, he's got a bird in the house. Gee. The... Uh, Anyway, so I, mom uh, spotted me this fly rod, and I put uh, my great uncle's reel on it, and I went out and put a little monofilament on it for leader because I didn't know what a leader was, and tied on a couple of flies that I had from my great uncle, and I threw it out there maybe 10 feet, you know, somehow I got it out there, landed on a lily pad, pulled it off the lily pad in between one of the little triangular space of water between the lily pads, and it sat there. I swear I must have looked at that thing, watched it for a half an hour. But sure enough, some dumb suicidal largemouth bass, about as big as the palm of my hand, I suspect, uh, came up and ate that thing. And I, I, hooked, I hooked him. I picked him up, dragged him across the top of the lily pads into the boat, didn't even take him off the hook, just rode back to the cottage to show my mom that I I was right. See here, Mom, I told you this is what I needed was a fly rod. And I got goosebumps on my arm right now just thinking about it. I tell you, it was like it was yesterday, Glenn. That's that's the way I remember it, and uh, and I loved it ever since. Um, I was never very good at it back then, you know, and I didn't have great uh, tackle to enjoy it much. And But uh, that's how it began for me. That's how I got excited about it. That's a great story, John. That's a good one. Uh, <laughs> I think I we probably that. all the first fish, but that was very dramatically uh, portrayed, Dave. That's wonderful. Now, did did you have any mentors in, in fly fishing once you got going, once you got uh, interested in this? Oh, yeah. Listen, I struggled like everybody who struggles uh, learning to fly fish. Fly casting was very difficult in those days. The tackle was not very forgiving, and uh, and I really struggled terribly like everyone. Uh, and kept reverting to my spin fishing and bait fishing kind of, in, you know, history. But um, I did. I fell in with several guys, uh, fortunately, uh, through Trout Unlimited and through a couple of very close friends, Julio Mazzoli and Bob Whitfold, both of whom are gone now, unfortunately. And uh, they introduced me to the guys at the Challenge chapter. They invited me to a meeting and encouraged me to join and, and get involved in the projects and raising money and working in the river. 
And uh, those guys, uh, uh, the ones that stick out most in my mind are Tudor Atmatic, uh, Milt Colson, uh, Reed Alexander, guys like that. Um, you know, they these guys really knew how to do it. They were great fly tires. They were good, uh, uh, you know, just the best fly fishermen I'd ever met. And I could never measure up to those guys in success hooking uh, fish. They were so good at it. And then I don't mean to leave out somebody like Bruce Richards who uh, really mentored me as a fly caster. He, okay. he, uh, he has a strong back. He carried me a long way in the fly casting world. Yeah. You could I do far that, worse than that. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that name is familiar. Uh, Bruce Richards. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, Dave and uh, Bruce Richards are both uh, master fly casters. And when I first heard about that, Dave, it, it, it seems to me that at, at that time, and this may be 10, 15 years ago, there were only 50 qualified master casters in the world, and that's a pretty small uh, brotherhood. Is that is that still the case, or, or what's the status oh, God, of that? You know, I, I, I don't think I know the numbers, but I suspect it's uh, probably double that, I'm sure, by now. Yeah. I I suspect, and let, you know... Most of us are pretty old. I suppose we're falling the wayside, so it could be 50. <laughs> but I think that, yeah, it could be fewer. I don't know. But, no, I think there's quite a few. And uh, I think there's, uh, uh, you know, it, it's a very challenging exam today. I'm not sure it was as challenging uh, when I was certified back in, I think, 90-something, 90 91, maybe, something like that, 90 two or something. I can't recall. But back no. then, uh, it was, uh, I think it was less rigorous. I think it was a uh, little less challenging exam. I think the people go for master today really have to be uh, head and shoulders above my abilities, I think. But well, well, I, I can vouch for his abilities. I, I tell people, I know a guy that uh, casts a fly rod, a fly line, and he can write your name in script. And if you have any I's and T's, in your name, he can dot them and, and, and cross them, and and he does all this with his left hand. I can't imagine what you'd do if you did it right-handed, Dave. I think. <laughs> no, you, know, you don't want to know. And of course, that allows for my misspellings too, right, Glenn? So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. But uh, well, it, it, it's a all the, Listen, all flycasters are left-handed. I keep telling you that. If you just start to cast with your left hand, you'd improve immediately. You know, you suggested that at one of our schools, and I've done a little bit of that, and uh, uh, I'm just trying to get up to D-minus with uh, the left hand. But uh, every once in a while, no, I'll try well, it. <laughs> listen, there aren't any instructors at the TU school who uh, who uh, aren't anything but just great casters and great teachers. So, uh, Let's touch on the TU school a little bit, Dave. And, and uh, this isn't a commercial, obviously, but uh, there's certainly nothing wrong in, in promoting uh, Trout Unlimited Fly Fishing School. Uh, and you are heavily involved in that. Uh, you've been a director and the lead casting instructor for, for what, 20 years or more? Yeah, ever since Bruce Richards uh, left the school, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I guess that's probably 25 years or so, yeah, maybe. That's a wonderful program, and it's open to anyone. Uh, it takes place in June. Uh, and, I, you know, I, Dave, I've been fishing for... 65 years fly fishing, not steadily, but I started that time. And uh, even now in that school, I learn something. I learn something every time I go, and I think that's true of uh, 
most of the instructors. Uh, I'll never forget uh, one afternoon watching Pat Gosman uh, uh, walk a streamer fly across the boardman uh, by vigorous men's, aggressive men's, and stripping. And he walked that streamer right underneath a bush where it would have been impossible to cast a streamer to that location. And he just literally walked it across by mending and stripping and mending and stripping. And I just stood in the river with all the students with my mouth hanging open and saying, my God, I can't believe I watched that. But uh, just wonderful, wonderful teachers. Uh, everybody uses the same uh, teaching system that you've, uh, you've created. Uh, and I can't, uh, I can't recommend that school enough. And your comments on the fly fishing school. Well, you know, it's been a love of my life. I mean, it's one of the most fun weekends for the instructors and, I, and, and for me as well. Uh, but what makes it so much fun, I think, is the fact that the students just have a great time and it's like an all-day deal. I mean, it just goes on and on and on until everybody's exhausted and goes to bed. So, I mean, mm -hmm. that's the fun part. Of it. Uh, it, it's hard not to uh, learn I mean, one of the advantages of that school, as large as it is, it's because I, I suspect it may be the largest gathering of students and instructors probably in the country for a school. There are a lot of schools, obviously. But because of that, and, and in some cases that may seem like a disadvantage, but I think in this case it's an advantage because you have such a wealth of knowledge of the instructors there to share and interact, and they all interact with all the students. It's just a fantastic uh, opportunity to pick up tidbits from everybody. Now, but for most people who attend the school, I think they've never held a fly rod, they've never fly fished, they just want to learn the sport, and they want to be self-sufficient on the river so they can put their waders on, grab their rod, and go fish on their own and not stumble and fumble. And I think it's hard to imagine a school that would do that, prepare a student better for that kind of a situation. I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, it's a soup to nuts kind of thing. Uh, and I will say that when we began that school, or when I began at the school, golly, uh, I, I forget how many years, 37 years, 35 years, something like that. Um, we really were lucky to be able to get a student to cast decent loops by the end of the weekend, just decent loops false casting, and maybe hit a target out in front of them maybe at about 40 feet. That was like success. Now, wow. in the first casting session, people are hitting a target, shooting line to 40 feet. I think we've really, really improved the, the uh, streamlined the uh, fly casting uh, dramatically. I think most students leave the school double hauling, um, learning how to mend line better and roll cast better and just so much more than they were able to do with a fly line. And that, that's my uh, focus, I think, more than anything, and that's what I'm most proud of, I think, for the school. But it's a fabulous, fun weekend, no question about it. Well, and the casting is, is a major part of it. That's the basis, of course, of uh, fly fishing. But uh, the other parts of it, covering uh, uh, reading a stream and understanding trout and, and understanding uh, at a very entry level uh, the basics of the insects, uh, the entomology uh, and the biology of a stream, uh, all of that's put together in, in a very good, comprehensive way, and, and the students seem to just really enjoy it and uh, can't recommend it enough. And how, how, yeah, could, uh, how could our listeners uh, access the... You fly fishing school, Dave, if they're interested or have 
friends or, or children that would like to get involved? Well, if they, I think it's uh, T-U-F-F-S, TUFS, that is uh, the acronym for uh, Trout Unlimited Fly Fishing School dot org. Uh, we'll get them to the homepage where they can get contact information and download an application and so on. Perfect. Should have all the all the prices and so forth. Uh, ordinarily, the Michigan Council site will have a link to that as well if they forget. But um, or just call the store. I'll give them the number. The all have to do is mention it, and we'll try to steer them onto the right person. Sure. Yep. That's good. T U F F S T U F F S dot org. Trout Unlimited yep. Fly School dot org. Good, a good program and a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, gosh, I you yep. know one other quick story about that. I you know I mentioned every year we learn something, and I think it was last year or the year before one of the instructors had his uh, and it's usually about three uh, students to an instructor, which is is good a good uh, ratio. But one of them asked the students right when he started said now. How many of you people uh, know what an igloo looks like? And all three of them raised their hand. And he said, okay, now, how would you paint the ceiling of an igloo? And, of course, they get their hand with a brush and big arcs are going on. And he looked at me and he says, now, that's the last time I want to see you painting the ceiling of an igloo. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> how do you paint the underside of a porch roof? And the hand's going parallel to the ground back and forth. He said, that's right. From now on, you're painting porch roofs, no igloos. And he let them have it. And I thought, what a wonderful uh, analogy! What a wonderful description of the of the motion. Yeah, there's a lot of great teachers in that group, and uh, and we take it very seriously. You know, it's not just a, a weekend to fish; it's really a weekend to learn. And there's no question that the most difficult aspect of fly fishing to learn from a video or a book. Or, or, you know, in that manner is fly casting. You really have to have somebody there to assist you and uh, guide you. And we have really great instructors who can do that very well. That's a good part of it. And you've also developed the seven steps of fly casting method, which is a guide to, to learning the process of fly casting. And, and it's a system that all of the uh, instructors follow uh, pretty much uh, and, and keep it very consistent. So, uh, you're not jumping around with method from here, method there. Uh, it's pretty consistent, but that's a lot of fun. I, I, we missed it this year. It would have been our 50th year, Dave. Uh, so I guess we'll all look forward to 51. Uh, and, uh, and well, then we're going to celebrate next year as the 50th. So, uh, you know, it's going to be a challenge to see what happens, but we've got about, what, nine months before it's here upon us, and I think uh, most of this COVID stuff will have uh, – subsided, passed along. I think we'll be well ahead of that curve. And uh, I would mention one thing to your listeners, and that is that uh, there are already uh, a substantial number of people signed up for that school and uh, because of last year's cancellation and who wanted to remain on the list. So if they're interested, don't, don't sit around and wait for May to sign up because it'll be full. So yeah, get on there. Get signed up right away and get your deposit in, and and if something uh, should happen and you know, uh, you know, return whatever, be uh, so get get on the list. Yeah. Good point. Well, Dave, point. And, and attendance I think for that is capped at like seventy anglers, right? That's right, and I think there are already thirty or more signed up. So. Yeah. And today, t- today would not be too early. <laughs> no, it would not. No. 
Dave, no, Dave no. you mentioned, uh, you mentioned if uh, people needed more information, call the store. Uh, that brings up the question of uh, what in the world is it like to have gone through uh, and, and still going through running a business uh, with this coronavirus uh, just clobbering uh, small businesses uh, all over the country. Tell us a little bit about that. How have you fared, and, and uh, uh, what are your experiences been in, in running a, a, a Orvis Streamside Angler? Well, uh, you know, it's I'll tell you, it's a frightening thing as a small business owner uh, to, you know, we, we just moved our store uh, block into a substantially larger and newer building, beautiful building downtown, the radio center, uh, right on Front Street in Traverse City. And uh, so it it was a substantial move, a big build-out. It was a precarious time, really, and, and we did it the first of the year. And business was going along really well. I mean, it was very exciting when this hit in March, and uh, the shutdown came in March and April. And I have to tell you, it was frightening. We thought, oh, my gosh, you know, we just made this big move, this big uh, capital investment, and here we go. But when we opened up in uh, the first, probably uh, roughly the first week of May, uh, it was like the floodgates opened. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm in touch with an, a great number of fly shops, both in Montana, Colorado, uh, Michigan, Ohio, all over the country, uh, who are friends of mine over many years. I mean, we've been doing this almost 30 years, so we have made a lot of good friends in the industry. And I have to tell you that the industry is in a boom that uh, – that our vendors and suppliers cannot even meet. It's such a huge, everybody decided that they would get out of the house in all these areas that were shut down. Let's get outside where it's safe. Let's get outside where we can do things. Let's go to out the states where there are outdoor activities. And it's just been a huge boom to the fly fishing world. I mean, those that this activity is just on fire right now nationally. So it was, and that that was reflected in our sales. Our the store is so I mean it's uh, so far ahead of the best year we've ever had. We just can't imagine. So uh, it's anything it's anything but a a worrisome thing for our business now. Fantastic. And you shared with me the other day on the phone. Uh, uh, the crowds that uh, you encountered on a recent trip to uh, uh, out west to to Montana. Yeah, just another example. Uh, you know, the fly shops were jammed in in west. You know, whether it was Jacklands or the or Big Sky Anglers or Blue Ribbon or all my friends there. You know, the uh, uh, Madison River Outfitters, all those guys. They're jammed. They're just jammed, uh, struggling to get product struggling to get rods and reels and things because the supply chain has been so interrupted from uh, the Far East and other places where we have products of uh, all the different vendors make and, and ship from. So, but it, but the lines outside of town, in, in town, I've never seen so many RVs. It just must be the entire West Coast just said, uh, they're so shut down from Washington all the way down to New Mexico. They're so shut down that, they just got to get out of town, so they all. I think they all went and bought RVs, and they're all lined up in Yellowstone. It's crazy. It was very busy. It was shockingly busy. Yeah. <laughs> but it was good. I'll, I'll tell. I'll tell you guys. I think it'd be great if that number of new anglers were to 
also, uh, aside from discovering all the wonderful things about the sport that we enjoy, uh, discover all the things that are available to enhance uh, the watersheds and and protect these resources as well. Mm, good point. Yep. Hopefully that'll happen. They, they will. They'll find us. They'll find TU. They'll find FFI. They'll find them all. So they'll get involved. You know, I, I, I'm just looking at my notes, and I, I, I want to go back to to uh, a story that I heard uh, you tell, Dave, about uh, your first in, uh, experience going into a fly shop. As, as I remember, it was quite humorous. Uh, w- would you share that with our listeners? Yeah, I think I know the story you're talking about, Glenn. The, it wasn't necessarily my first adventure into a fly shop, but it is one it, my most memorable early on in my life because I think I was a teenager about 17 and I had a couple of pals that I'd go up north fishing with and and uh, we'd always try to get up north to the two-hearted for opening day and things like that so we'd we'd fish our way up north into the UP and of course we had to stop in Grayling and levels and the area you know to get the word there and fish because that was the holy waters you know so anyways, uh, I remember stopping in this shop and, uh, you know, in my own ignorance, I, I asked, there were a couple of guys in there, you know, looking at flies, Gab, and I could see I'd sort of interrupted the little uh, cracker clutch there, you know, in the shop uh-huh. around there. And, uh, and I said, so, um, you know, what, what's hatching? Well, you know, I, they they sort of smirked or they kind of, you know, kind of chuckled at my question. Uh, you know, I, I I was ignorant. There's no question about it. But I thought maybe they helped me understand what was going on, where and when and so forth. And and the and the answer was uh, the howdies. And I go, uh, you know, well, I, I didn't expect to hear howdies. Let's put it that way. I didn't know what a howdy was from Chinola. So I said, well, what's a howdy? And and they laughed a little more, you know, and they kind of led me along on this trail to nowhere of, uh, said, well, the white glove howdies, you know, the ISO, the, you know, and uh, I had no, I was so embarrassed. I, I just, you know, I could, I felt so ignorant of the sport and what was going on. I didn't know what question to ask next. So I just shut up and went over to the fly bin and just started picking some flies that I thought looked like bugs to me. I didn't know uh, an Isonychia bicolor from, uh, you know, uh, a marshmallow. I didn't know. So I just uh, bought some flies and got out of there about as fast as I could because I just really was embarrassed. But I remember what it did to me, and that was I swore that I would never, if I owned a fly shop, I would never do that. I would make sure that somebody asked me a question, I'd try to teach them what bug is hatching and where it's hatching and what time of uh, day I should be on the river to find that bug. And I would, you know, I would help that person learn. I just wouldn't I wouldn't embarrass them that way. Now, I may have been thin-skinned, you know. I was just a kid. I was just a punk. But, um, but yeah, it really sort of affected me, and I think that's in large part why I enjoy teaching it so much. I teach a lot of schools, as you know, Glenn, for, for Orvis and FI and TU and a lot of groups. So 
the, the you know how much I enjoy being in front of a group uh, doing that. I just well, listen to me. I can't shut up. No, I enjoy I, I it. Think, yeah. I think we can thank those uh, two or three curmudgeons that were at that shop for uh, instilling that uh, interest in you to to help people yeah. and answer questions and, and teach them. So. Uh, from, from a negative came a real good positive, Dave, and and um, so many of us have, have benefited from your knowledge and your willingness to teach and help, and even even us old guys. Uh, I was thinking the other day, God, I'm, I'm old enough. If I had lived 5,000 years ago, I'd have been eaten many, many years ago. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. but uh, e- even at this age, we can learn, and, and it's a delight. Uh, and just good. That's a good story. <laughs> I like I like that one when I when I heard it the first time and thanks for sharing it with us. And John, sure. speaking of, uh, maybe maybe it's a time we want to cover the some information about the holy water also. But uh, let's do let's do that first, uh, uh, Dave. I, I know there was quite a controversy years ago about uh, catch and release and and no kill and uh, on the Osapel system and and I believe you had quite a quite involvement in that. Would you share with our listeners uh, some of that uh, controversial time and, and uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, it was uh, very controversial. I mean, the city was involved, the city of Grayling was involved, uh, the residents there, the Trout Unlimited uh, had, a, had a position on it that uh, was in uh, direct opposition to the anglers of the Asable who were just forming with the help of Rusty and, and others. and. And, uh, boy, I tell you, it was a very, very heated time. Um, I remember it uh, because um, I was so devoted to Trout Unlimited and trying to protect the cold water resource. That's what we sort of thought of ourselves as, as trying, you know, trout were the canary in the mine. We wanted to make sure that we had healthy rivers for trout to, to uh, thrive in and so on. And... And uh, so I was, you know, we really working hard uh, raising money for for projects and so forth. So um, when this controversy came up, uh, we we had always, just so you know, up until that moment, that one issue, Trout Unlimited had always gone along with whatever the fisheries biologists recommended for the resource, whether it was a regulation, whether it was a, a permit for a, a, a wing dam or a sand trap or whatever, the, a point source erosion problem we had need to fix, whatever it was, if the biologist said, this is what you need to do to improve the fishery and improve the resource, that's what we did. And mm-hmm. here was an issue that uh, sounded good on paper, you know, don't kill any trout, then then we'll have lots and lots of great big trout everywhere. Sounds so logical, and yet the biologists said the models didn't show that, and uh, and they said, but it's up to you guys, you know. They didn't want to get in the middle of this battle, see. So uh, uh, the night before the vote at Michigan Council, where Michigan Council of Trout Unlimited was going to either endorse no-kill or not endorse no-kill, uh, uh, I, you know, I feel like I, you know, I talked with Al Pinkowski, the chair of that t- at that time, about what to do, and I kind of came to the conclusion with Al, I think, I don't mean to speak for Al, but uh, I kind of came to the conclusion that it was more important that we uh, keep Trout Unlimited 
solvent to work on all rivers in Michigan, cold water resources in Michigan, than it was to uh, let Trout Unlimited uh, suffer or fail over one issue like no-kill on one river. So because at that time the anglers had, you know, threatened to take seven Trout Unlimited chapters and make them anglers chapters. And, uh, boy, you know, we didn't want to lose that kind of involvement for projects and fundraising and so on. So council did vote for no-kill uh, was the bottom line with the end result there. And uh, and that was 30 years ago, basically. And uh, I just, um, you know, I... I know that river extremely well, as you know. I did, you know, the islands at uh, Whippoorwill and, and and the Spite Road Stairway and and other mm-hmm. projects around the area. And uh, so I fished it many many times. But uh, you know, anecdotally, I have to tell you that the fishing when there were slot limits was better. There were more big. I don't say big fish. There were more fish in that sort of fun you know, 12 to 16 inch kind of range in the river uh, during those days. And and I hear, you know, complaints like year after year after year for the last uh, 30 years about where have those size fish gone in the watershed. So I, I just, uh, you know, I'm no biologist, so I don't uh, I don't have data to support any of that. It's all anecdotal, but I have to tell you that I think after 30 years of no-kill, if it were going to be a big, successful, you know, uh, uh, policy that maybe we'd see uh, better results from it is all I'm suggesting. And I think it should be looked at again. I'm a firm believer in slot limits, if they're given enough time, are successful. And and, uh, I'd I'd just like to see that somebody maybe suggest maybe trying that again. But that's you know, that's just me. It's just one watershed. And, and I will say this, Glenn, the anglers of the Asable are great stewards for that watershed. They're there day in and day, day out uh, dealing with all kinds of point source problems and erosion. And it's a fabulous river. It's cold. It's clean. And uh, it just, uh, you know, I just think the fishing could be improved perhaps with some better management of the uh, regulation is all. That's just interesting. My interesting we're lucky to have they're they're a great uh, hard working bunch of guys who are who they, care they deeply sure. about good. Yeah. We we were in the river yesterday actually looking looking at some structure uh, potential down below the Kellogg Bridge stretch on the north branch with a retired biologist Steve Sendek and, and Terry Lyons from the Anglers and just looking at, uh, there was a thought that, that that would be difficult to improve that area because Big Creek comes in and it's high water. But uh, when we were mapping for another study, uh, one of the residents said, gee, some of those structures out there were put in in 1981 and they're still working. Well, that caught our attention. So we did a little survey yesterday to look at that water, and, and I think both the anglers and the fish biologists said, oh, we think we can do some things down here to improve the habitat. and. And that's what Anglers does. That's what TU does, and and it's great. I, I remember uh, TU. I think that the TU Founders chapter had uh, voted to uh, voted against no kill, uh, and then once the vote was taken, uh, they told the chapter, "Okay, now we're behind it. The vote was taken. Uh, we're going to support it. We're TU. Uh, we're part of the organization, and 
and I think uh, I think that was uh, uh, commendable because you're right. There's no sense no sense losing a great organization over one issue. Yeah, you know Hazen. You remember Hazen Miller, I suspect, don't you? The yeah. old Asab. The old Asab. Yeah, and uh, Hazen's cabin is down there. I used to stay at Hazen's cabin with Tudor, and and uh, and we pil- we would pilfer his corned beef hash. By the way, I feel our boys felt guilty about that. Only so guilty. But uh, and uh, I do recall specifically. I'll bet you to this day there's still a bunch of those old fish hides that have been popped out of the ground by ice dams and so forth that mm-hmm. that are down in that water. I've fished down there in years, but there were just loads of great fish hides that had been put in there uh, back in the late 70s, I think. Uh, yeah. And they were coming out from ice dam uh, and just, just uh, I remember. So, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done down there to improve that. That's great. And I yeah. know there's a lot of money, a lot of chapters ready to do it. So that's that's great. Well, you mentioned the Challenge Chapter, and I was a member of the Challenge Chapter for quite a while until we built up here, and then I switched allegiance, of course, because of proximity. But the Challenge Chapter always was is, is still calling us, saying, uh, hey, what do you need done? Uh, we got a crew of guys, and I think it was about four years ago we did the Morley Road access improvement, and a bunch of Challenge Chapter fellows came up, about uh, ten of them, and we had a heck of a good day in the river just uh, repairing that access, and... Uh, uh, that night, um, I got home pretty tired. We'd worked hard. And I got a call from one of our guides on the North Branch, Joe Guild, and he said, Hey, Glenn, I just wanted to tell you, you guys did a hell of a nice job on that access. And that was delightful. Oh, Here a guy, yeah. I comment on it. But the challenge chapter comes forth every year, as do many of them, Dave, as you know. Now, tell us Good about point. Adam's chapter. Well, the Adams chapter is is uh, is very active. You know, we're the stewards for the boardman, obviously, since it's out our back door, and uh, you know, it's been the focal point for the removal. I think the largest dam removal project in the country ever. Uh, three dams removed in in uh, over the course of about ten years, I think, and uh, um. It's uh, returned all, you know, uh, many miles of river to its original bed. That, I mean, when they removed the last dam at uh, and impoundment at Sabin there, uh, they didn't just, you know, they had channelized that dam in a straight flow uh, to generate power and had bypassed the original riverbed, which... Uh, they had to reclaim, they had to find it. They had to actually research where it was and everything, and now it's returned, and my gosh, it's all cobble and stone, and it's just Mm. ripping as a very high gradient. It's an amazing piece of river that's recovered, and uh, the fishing is improving uh, already. So we're really excited about that. uh, In fact, the the guys who work for me fish it almost, you know, every day off they have, so... Hey John, we yeah, got amazing it, project. Yeah. That is such a beautiful river. It is. It's actually the river I I was fishing before I fished the Asable, and uh, just it's so exciting to see it come come around and evolve and improve. Uh, as you say, over the course of the last ten years or so, it's pretty cool. John, you know, I, it's. Uh, 
you know, it's something that's on my mind every day because it's right there in town. It's all around us. Uh, and I've done so many schools and I've fished it so many, you know, years. So, but I have to tell you that there is a push on, you know, that upstream of where Saban Dam impoundment was has not been stocked in 50 years. Uh, and I come from the school that believes that trout streams, if they need improvement and they need more fish, then they need to improve the habitat to, uh, uh, to improve the self-sustaining uh, numbers of fish. I mean, it should be a self-sustaining population. I mean, it's, I'm a firm believer that the trout are the canaries in the mine and that when you start stocking rivers with trout, it becomes easy to fix a an ailing river uh, that's polluted or filled with sediment or uh, ro- is eroding and so forth. It's easy to always just throw some more fish in there, you know. But imagine in a in a coal mine where the canaries all died and they sent all the miners out the next day and they just said, "Well, don't worry about the methane. Here's another canary." You know that just doesn't make any sense. So, I'm right, believers to to allow. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't believe that the brook trout and brown trout populations that are in that river should have to compete with any Lake Michigan uh, anadromous, pseudo-anadromous species. I just think that's a mistake, and we're fighting that tooth and nail. I just think that's a, just a giant mistake. Uh, these rivers, uh, those, those Lake Michigan species don't belong up in there. I mean, there, there are dozens and dozens of spawnable waters down Lake Michigan coastline where these fish can go up for miles and miles and miles and have lots of spawning area. They don't need to have the boardman as well, in my opinion. So mm-hmm. there. So no, that, I, I, I agree that, with you, Dave. Yeah. Well, Dave, how, that, do, how do our listeners can, that battle? How, how do we help, help out? Well, you can, uh, you know, <laughs> that's a good question because, uh, uh, there are powerful entities here. Now, I, you know, the, there's the federal government involved in it, which has put it on hold at the moment. Uh, uh, letters to, you know, fisheries, uh, fish and wildlife would be a good uh, good place to begin. Uh, the governor's office in Michigan here, obviously, is a good place to begin because the DNR can't do anything until the feds have mitigated the sea lamprey issue. There's a, see, that's the kind of thing that happens when you allow these uh, these anadromous or pseudo-anadromous fish upstream. So I, I'm telling you, I think the, the governor's office, they need to understand that uh, taxpayers are entitled to recreate in these areas and that you want, if you really want to have a good and viable population, self-sustaining population of trout, don't mess with it. Don't, in, don't uh, corrupt it with a bunch of species that are not, uh, that really don't belong up in there. And, uh, that's the way to do it. Uh, they, they, uh, politicians make these laws, and uh, or at least sign them into law, and uh, uh, direct these commissions. And I'm, I'll just tell you right now, they respond to taxpayers who uh, write checks to their campaigns. As you okay. know, this time of year, yes. yes. So that's yes. how they. And there is no other way. The DNR. Uh, uh, really responds to these issues based on what they hear. And the biologists get arguments on both sides. But I will say that the uh, 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 the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa are deeply involved in protecting brook trout. They have a, 
they have a, a, a history of uh, caring about that species. Um, I think that uh, there are those at the DNR who believe in self-sustaining populations and know that they're diluted when we start stocking them and so forth. So, you know, sure. I think the real way to deal with this is with uh, writing letters. Yeah. Okay. Now that that listener, our listeners can uh, can respond to that. So, I guess the message is, don't pollute a clear water chute with stocking. There's no reason. I mean, Trout Unlimited really began by saying. Uh, back in the days of Howard Tanner, that look, you know, if we spend half as much money improving the watershed, um, then we won't have to spend a ton of money with hatcheries, raising yeah. fish in, into the river. And you'll have a healthier uh, cold water watershed, and you'll have a healthier species in there uh, that survives. So, I mean, it just it's, it's just common sense it's just to not... Uh, Pursue this diet. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for uh, hatcheries and stocking of fish in the state because a lot of uh, rivers, a lot of lakes, uh, not the least of which are the Great Lakes, re require some kind of supplementation this, or supplemental uh, stocking in order to keep the species going to mm -hmm. perpetuate mm -hmm. it. But not the cold water re resource. I don't agree with that. I think that needs to be clean and cold, and that's how you make sure it is. Yep. Right there with you, Dave. Good. And good. I'll case, sign you. I'll put you guys on the list. You're yeah. on the good list. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> well, TU was started based on uh, paying attention to science, uh, and uh, they were instrumental back in 1959, getting scientists on the board and and uh, getting opinions and and trying to manage the habitat that way rather than public opinion. And and I I, I think that's the right way to do it. I, I hate to see. Public, I hate to see the DNR responding to public opinion. I, I guess they have to. Uh, their their income comes from from uh, the li li license paying public, but I just wish that they specifically work to science and and uh, a little less input from uh, those of us that maybe want something that isn't good for the resource. Well, in fairness, the DNR has an impossible task because they're trying to satisfy people who have big power boats out on the Great Lakes. And uh, and want to use the rivers uh, as rookeries for those waters. They have to manage that. They have to manage the inland lakes. They have to manage uh, the cold water resource. They have all these issues to deal with, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, it's it's really a thankless kind of position. But I will say this: um, it helps. You know, it would it would be helpful if we had more people uh, uh, who had a, a, a fishing or a fisheries background. Uh, maybe in office, uh, who who uh, write legislation and uh, fulfill these directives, and uh, that that would help a lot. I think that's you know we, there we have had years and uh, eras where uh, we had uh, you know sportsmen, outdoors people who hunted and and fished uh, to support these programs, and you know perhaps today not as much. So we'll, we'll see. Well, and, and to circle back, Dave, all those new folks that are, you know, ha, have been introduced to the sport, you know, this is a great, great opportunity to activate those people and, uh, you know, add more voices to the chorus, as it were. Listen, I'll tell you, 
the, the nicest people I've ever met in my life, I've met through Trout Unlimited. The kindest people, they've helped me through all problems in my life, and I've helped some of them through problems they've had. I mean, these are people that uh, devote many, many hours selflessly to just uh, care about the environment and care about our cold water and and uh, and and uh, they're just kind people. I tell you, they're just the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life. And if somebody, if for no other reason, uh, you know, a lot of people don't join organizations because they just aren't joiners. But you know, you can do a lot worse than joining any Trout Unlimited chapter. You'll meet the nicest people, and you can uh, work as hard on it as you want or not at all. It's up to you. But you're certainly going to meet some very kind people that you'll have a lot of common interests with and a lot of fun with. So, I mean, I highly recommend you go to tu.org. Just, hey, sign up. They'll assign you to a chapter no matter where you live, wherever you are, and uh, you'll meet great people. You'll go to some meetings maybe. Maybe you won't, but you'll certainly meet some nice people one way or another. That's well said, Dave. Thank you. It's a great organization. And and along those lines, I like to uh, uh, plug Dave Leonard a little bit here. It must have been, uh, I don't know how many years ago, uh, 15 or so, that uh, we were doing an exhibit at our museum, our uh, trout fishing museum, and uh, uh, for some reason somebody said, you got to go up to uh, Traverse and talk to Dave Leonard. At that time, I think you were in the uh, uh, Grand Traverse Resort and Spa uh, building, that huge resort up there. I think your shop yeah, was I, More like about 17 or 18 years ago, but that's okay. I don't mean to date you, Maybe so. <laughs> That's a long time. But I, I called Dave Leonard, and I told him what we were doing, and, and he said, well, come on up. And uh, I went up and chatted with you and told you we were working on this exhibit, and uh, um, I was supposed to check in something about the Adams fly, which I knew about, but I didn't know where it came from. And you uh, graciously gave me a uh, picture of the first Adam fly, uh, a picture of an original Adams that Len Halliday tied, uh, and I'm looking at a copy of it right now, Dave, and, and uh, you know, I, uh, who, who am I to criticize uh, Len Halliday, but this thing's a mess. There's no such thing as a genetically raised, you know, uh, the, the hackle in those days was pretty poor, you know, uh, so... Oh. This looks like but the head of a, a 1960 hippie, this, the hackle, and <laughs> the dubbing goes around yeah. the bend of the hook and a little bit of a, a golden pheasant tail. Uh, it uh, it sure doesn't look impressive, but the fact that it's a picture of the original, one of the original Adams is pretty special, and, and you were great to uh, uh, give us a, a copy of that, and we have it in our museum. And one other thing you might even have forgotten about was uh, you gave me a postcard uh, that... Uh, Len Halliday, who was a guide in that area uh, from Mayfield, is it? Mayfield, right. Mm-hmm. Oh, yep. Uh, Mayfield Pond was, was the test grounds. <laughs> that's that's yep. right. And he would send postcards to all of his clients early in the year, maybe February, to tell them, uh, hey, it's fishing time's coming. You better sign up, uh, book me for a couple of, of uh, trips. And uh, on the back of the card was a poem that his father-in-law had uh, written. He, his father-in-law was a poet, apparently, and wrote a bunch of small little short poems. And Len Halliday would put the poem on the back and then on the other side say, 
hey, Mr. So-and-so, uh, be sure to contact me for fly fishing trips. And, and uh, we have that in the museum. And you were wonderful. One other little point to, to thank Dave again, uh, and again it was years ago, uh, we had a speaker at our trout opener on the last Saturday of April when we would open our exhibit from the museum. And uh, we had Bob uh, Lindsman signed up to be our speaker. And Bob came down with an eye uh, infection uh, early that week, and he couldn't make it. And out of desperation, I called uh, Dave Leonard uh, and asked Dave uh, if he would be willing to come down and, and, and give a little talk about fly fishing. Uh, and, uh, by gosh, Dave said yes. Now, this is the trout opener, Saturday of the opening of the trout season. And Dave Leonard says, I'll come all the way from Traverse down to your little village in Lovells, and I'll, I'll give a little talk about uh, trout fishing. And <laughs> Dave, as I recall, um, you spoke about the transition of trout fishing you'd seen over the years. Uh, would you would you just cover that a little bit? Because I thought that was a wonderful way to, to uh, entice our our uh, members. You know, that's funny. I, I did not recall that, but I do now. Yeah, I do remember what a cold, miserable opener that was, too. I think it was just another one of the typical rotten days, you know. But yeah. the, I, I enjoyed that very much. We, The people, uh, you know, I talked about how... Uh, how opening day differed and how a, tri a typical trout fishing day would differ uh, today versus maybe uh, 75 years ago or 100 years ago. I mean, it just uh, – yes. and uh, people were just amazed at what they used to do in the old days to get ready for a day's fishing. And uh, I think I even brought along I, – I have a copy of a 16-millimeter uh, – film that um, Robert Traver, right, uh, uh, put together, called, the author of Trout Madness and, and uh, Trout Magic, and his opening day uh, movie was called Trout Madness, and it was about him uh, scooting around the UP up there by Ishpeming, uh, where his place is, uh, on opening day, and how he prepared for that day of fishing. And uh, 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 John uh, uh, Volker is, you know, his real name, of course, the oh, yeah. Supreme Court, but the author of Trout Madness. Anyways, so uh, I showed that, I think I showed that little video, uh, I, I transferred it onto a videotape in those days, mm -hmm. and uh, fascinating, but it would show how you'd stretch the line between the trees and dress the line and get ready, and then you'd go, and as part of the the day's fishing, it was uh, uh, customary to catch a couple of trout for lunch and all that sort of thing, you know. Uh, I think people were just amazed at all the tradition that went into a day's fishing, not just get in your waders, grab your vest, and go. It's very different today. So uh, they they seemed very surprised at that, and uh, I think I hope they enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed coming down. I always like seeing you and uh, the museum. Was such a great place to hang out you know it was great we really enjoyed it and, and we've actually uh, uh found that uh, uh film and we had it reproduced for our museum uh with uh, uh, pro uh property rights paid and and uh, we have some copies and i'll get a few up to you dave um yeah but it, it's great. a great a little bit. yeah yeah very it's a good nice film. well my gosh uh you know that our our exhibit this year was going to be uh, we had the we didn't have the museum open because of our wonderful 
COVID mess, but uh, the exhibit was going to be River Guides in Their Stories. And Dave, we've had some good ones. Uh, we've had some dandies. Uh, and uh, some of them I tell guides, and I know there's some stories you can't tell in public, but uh, maybe maybe there's a few that you could share with our our uh, our listeners. And in in your, I, I know you like wade fishing as opposed to boat fishing to a degree, but you must have a few good stories that uh, that you could you could bring up, Dave, regarding uh, some incidents with uh, with clients in the past. Anything particular come to mind for the share with well, John and? Yeah. You know, I'm not a guide, so I, I don't have any client stories, if you will. Although, uh, I, I, you know, things happen to you. There's no question about it. My wife always likes to say that going fishing with Dave is just Dave deciding to just take a dip for the day because I always end up doing the breaststroke when I go fishing with my wife. I just, I'm, uh, I'm to wade. Uh, first of all, I think the big thing that I guess I noticed is different about the way I think and people from my era think is that when we went trout fishing, nobody got in the river and fished there. You always went someplace and fished from point A to point B and then got out. I mean, you, it was a moving effort. It was a moving experience. It was a walking, waiting, moving experience. And there was no stationary deal to it except in the middle of the night maybe you'd stake out a you know, a good log jam or something. That was a little different. But even at night, the guys that I fished with and who mentored me, we waited. I mean, we would wait all the way from Pine Road to Whipperwell every night, you know. I mean, and, and uh, so uh, walking in the river is, it has, has always been part of it for me. But I, I can remember I learned to try to keep up with Tudor, Tudor at Matic, who he he would run downstream. I, I couldn't keep up. I mean, he was amazing. So I've learned that sort of pace, and people who fish with me hate me because I'm always out of sight before you know it. But I'm always falling down. I'm tripping over a log or a lump of grass in the middle of the river or something, you know, and down I go, and I'm wet now. Well, I'll just dry out with the bag. It's part of the deal. Um, I do remember though that was kind of interesting that uh, I, I think of I was fishing down below Mayo they have uh, between oh I guess it's uh, what uh, Connors and 4001 or whatever the heck those landings are down there below Mayo they have mm -hmm. the most incredible Isonychia hatch I've ever seen just millions and millions of bugs I mean it, it's the most prolific hatch I've ever seen I think on, on that river and uh and I'm fishing with a pal, and I'm upstream in this riffly part, and I'm not doing anything. I don't see any fish feeding or anything. As, and, I, and downstream, I see him raise his rod and start running downstream like he's, you know, and, and I can see this going. He's 100 yards away from me, but I can just see him running, thrashing downstream, and he gets down and then obviously breaks the fish off. The fish beats him downstream and breaks him off. And uh, and I see him like, you know, I can't hear what he's saying, but I can only imagine by his gestures what he's saying. So <laughs> I, I back it up, I go downstream to see what the heck's going on, and he, he describes to me uh, this fish. He hooks this fish, this huge fish, just starts ripping downstream, peeling line off his real faster than he, you know, he, so he's, he knows he's going to line him. So he's running downstream, and eventually the fish breaks him off. He says, I, and I look over, he says, I got to retie. I got to, you know, 
the ice and tip it on, put a new fly on. It's going to take me a minute to catch my breath. You get in there and fish right now. And I look out there, and there's like five or six fish feeding right in this nice spot, this quiet water, and uh, really aggressively. So I see, you know, we sort of measure the width of the noses is what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. I see this good fish sipping these isonychia, and I get in there, and about the second or third cast, I hook the fish. And, gosh, it feels like heavy fish, you know, really good fish. And uh, I'm playing them, and I'm playing them, you know. And my buddy says, you want me to get in there and help you with them? And I said, no, I got them. I just strip them over, and I land them. Well, he's about an 18- or 19-inch fish. He's a really good heavy fish. And I land him, and in his mouth is my buddy's fly. Oh, that fish that. had gone. I, I swear, this is the absolute truth. That fish uh, ran him downstream probably 100 yards, came all the way back upstream while I'm talking to my buddy and getting in the river and getting organized. That fish came all the way back up to feed in exactly the same spot, and I hooked him. So <laughs> believe me or not, I know my nose is not getting longer, and, uh, you know, I'll be <laughs> happy to get documentation for it if you want. But that, that, I always thought that was an amazing thing to experience oh. that – Oh my God! Uh, that, that, he, that is. Never he, I was in his jaw. Yeah, absolutely. So they they will come back and feed again. Yes, they will. So they do. They do. You bet. Oh, Dave, that's wonderful. John, I I, I think this has been a phenomenal uh, session with Dave. I, I thank you so much, Dave, for all the knowledge you've shared with us and for the years of dedication to this wonderful sport. And thanks from all the people you've helped and, and mentored and. Uh, I just hope that uh, you keep it up for many years to come and and uh, uh, continue to enjoy this great uh, great fly fishing adventure we're involved in. Len, thanks a lot for having me. You know, I think very highly of you and what you've done there with the museum. I'm a, you know, I was a history major in college, so I I love history and I and I I just respect all of these people who led the way for us, who you. Uh, sort of documented in in levels there is is well worth uh, viewing and and uh, your kind words are are appreciated. Thank you very much. We've had a lot well, of fun with so much and and John and I uh, uh, both are wrapping up the the season for Backcast Podcast and this was John's uh, baby. He he came up with this idea. He says, how are we going to keep in touch with our our fans and the people that enjoy this museum? And and to his credit, he came up with this process of of getting a hold of folks and and uh john i i thank you for the the wonderful thoughts and all the technical work you do and uh dave we we've just met so many good people this way and it's been fun to and i don't know john can can tell you how many people are, are on the on the how many states we got covered and how many people so we we actually had our first listener from great britain uh, so we've got we've got listeners from Great Britain, we've got listeners from Canada, we've got listeners from 23 states. Uh, it's it's been very humbling and and a, and a lot of fun. And uh, to Glenn's point, a, a, a fun team effort. It's uh, we've we've had a chance to uh, you know share these conversations with a bunch of folks, and uh, it's it's just been a, it's been a blast. So. This is a nice way to wrap up the uh, the official trout season and what would normally be our our season of operation. And I think as we uh, as we move into the winter, maybe we'll find some other ways to uh, 
maybe do our uh, hot stove talks uh, via podcast as well. <laughs> Great. Great. Well, thanks a lot for including me, John. I'm very grateful. I appreciate it. It's always know, good to talk to you. Terrific to hear you, Dave, and, and thank you so much for your time. And sure. a quick plug Any for Orvis, Orvis Streamside Anglers. You folks need some material for the winter. You're going to be tying flies, and there's still a lot of good fishing ahead of us. Stop by and see Dave and his team up there. They're, they're most accommodating. And uh, I haven't been in the new store yet, but I'll look forward to it soon, Dave. Thanks again so much, and uh, thanks, everybody. Yeah, that was fun. So as I alluded to in the uh, end of the interview, we will uh, be doing some podcasts uh, throughout the off season. Uh, we're still kind of trying to come up with a lineup. Uh, it'll be in the uh, spirit of uh, our local hot stove uh, talks that we have every few weeks, uh, normally uh, occurring through the winter. Uh, this year, probably not. So uh, my advice, stay tuned and uh Thanks again, everybody, for listening. We've really enjoyed bringing these to you. Until then, be well.